Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. One of the uh, one of the things I love about summertime, even though it's a little bit um, challenging because families go on vacation, people take time off, and so often we don't see the people we're used to seeing on a regular basis. It's fun to see people come and visit, and you know, as folks are traveling around or not. I be- um, if you didn't notice, Tim Ritter's back. Welcome. Um, I think Tim gets the award for most time zones crossed to be here, um, from Texas to Indonesia to Illinois. Strange way to go, but you know, it works. Uh, so get a, get with Tim if you get a chance to hear what God's been doing. Um, I already called out Ben Ritter uh, on the birthday thing, so I won't embarrass him anymore. We need to focus on creation, God's six days of work and zero days of rest. Six and zero of which have nothing to do with Ben's birthday. (laughs) So, um, love you, man. (laughs) Just wait, he says. Just wait. Uh, For those that are visiting with us, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, We don't usually do what we're going to do next on a Sunday morning because usually the way we preach on Sunday mornings is that we work ourselves through a book of the Bible, piece by piece, bit by bit. Uh, The last few weeks, we've done something different, which is take some certain topics that are key foundational truths of doctrine and try to unpack those and understand them better. And so that's what we're going to do again this morning. Uh, We've been, as Chris uh, mentioned earlier, we've been working our way through the topics in this little booklet, the story of what we believe the story of what God has done since time began and is continuing to do in the lives of believers everywhere, and specifically how that story engages us, the people of Kishwaukee Bible Church, and how it is unique to us. And so as we're thinking about doctrine and thinking about theology and thinking about the big things of God, we want to take some time to just hit the highlights, stop at each little mountain peak along the way, try to get a an understanding of where it fits into the bigger picture of God's uh, great plan and design. And at the same time, to think about what's important about that doctrine. Why does it matter? Why does it matter to God? Why does it matter to us? And uh, and why should we know more about it? Uh, And uh, and those sorts of things. And so we've we've come to the third stop in our little journey, uh, the stop of creation. And we're going to talk about creation from God's perspective uh, for a little while this morning. Before we do that, I'm going to read the little section in our storybook about creation, not because this is going to be the text for our morning, but because uh, we want, as a, as a fellowship and as a family, to be thinking about what creation means. And so I want this fresh in our minds so that as we unfold the Scriptures, we can be asking ourselves, did we get it right? Are there things that we should have said that we didn't? Are there things that we said poorly that could be said better? And, uh, and, and so I want you to hear these words, and you can follow along the reprinted in the bulletin if you don't have the little booklet. Uh, and then after I read through these, we'll, we'll unpack some scriptures together that talks more about creation. But our storybook says this, creation, in the beginning, God brought all things, both visible and invisible, into existence. He did so of his own free will and for the display of his character. Creating everything out of nothing, he ordered our world according to his purposes, perfect without corruption. As the climax of creation, God made humanity, both male 
and female in his image, appointing them to care for creation and govern it according to his word. Together, men and women complement one another in their distinctive roles within the created order, the church, and the covenantal relationship of marriage. We submit ourselves to God as the one who made this world and look to him as the one who will one day remake it again. And so, those are the words of men, not the words of Scripture, trying to grasp the truths of Scripture, the truths of God, and put them into practical, somewhat simple terms. But in order to really understand that truth, we want to spend some time digging into not men's words, but God's words. And I I found as I was preparing for this morning that that's more of a challenge than I expected. Um, I knew creation was a big deal, and most of us would say, well, creation, we're going to talk about Genesis. That's fair, and we will. We'll spend a good part of our time there. But creation is actually a doctrine that's woven throughout the Scriptures in in multiple places and in multiple ways. Um, I spent time in Job, in Psalms, uh, in Isaiah. Um, I looked into Jesus' words in the Gospels a few times, um, Paul's words in Romans, uh, the the explanation of why certain things were taught in Acts. Uh, Creation appears in Ephesians and multiple other epistles. And then, of course, we have the grand crescendo of Scripture, Revelation, the recreation of all that God will make. And so, trying to bring all of that together and distill it down into one Sunday morning sermon is interesting. Um, But I think in the process of unfolding that, what we'll see is there are some themes that emerge, both in Genesis and in the rest of Scripture. Themes like the ultimate authority and supremacy of our Creator. The fact that, even as Alistair touched on, the creation reflects the deep and complex nature of its Creator. The theme that human beings have a special place in this created order, being the only thing that was made in the image of God. And the idea that somehow in all of this, God's sovereignty reigns, both in His plan for creating, but also in His plan for redeeming that creation, and then ultimately His plan for recreating. And so, in order to try to get us going and get our brains engaged, I want to start where we stopped last week. And if you were here last week, Chris Hudson did a great job of unfolding a doctrine of the Bible for us, and he ended our service with the words from um, the second half of Psalm 19, a psalm that talks about creation and the Word of God. And it fit into what Chris was saying because it extols the Bible. It extols God's Word and tells us how beautiful it is. But listen to the first half of that same psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, 
and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Psalm 19 goes on and says, not only does God reveal Himself in creation, but He reveals Himself in His Word. And Alistair's testimony of how God reveals Himself in His creation is true. And the more you know of creation, the more you can marvel at the one who created it. And the radiance of that Creator, the splendor of our God, goes everywhere that the rays of the sun touch and beyond. And the psalmist says that we can proclaim God's goodness and we can know God's goodness because of all that we see and hear and smell and touch and taste. And the Apostle Paul would take this and go even further. And he would say, not only can we know God, but we are without excuse because God's creation reveals who He is to everyone who comes in contact with that creation. Jew or Gentile, religious or secular, believer or non-believer, you've been exposed to the creation of God, you've been exposed to God. And when God says, you should know me, and you will be judged for that, Paul says, you have no excuse but to say, you're right, and to fall at His feet. And His eternal power and His divine nature are evident in what we see around us. And so, as creation reveals the true character and nature of God, it behooves us to dig into that creation, to spend some time. And, and um, I would encourage you to do that. You'll have opportunity as you leave here, as you go about your week, as you engage in day to day. But for the next several minutes, what I want to do is unpack some of that story of creation, how God brought things to be, and ask God to tell us more about Himself as we study what He did. And so we're going to launch into Genesis. We're going to start at the beginning. And for those that like to follow along, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. But before I read, let me just pray that God would continue to bless the unfolding of His Word. Father, it's a great, great joy to open your scriptures this morning. And even as we have seen the sun and we have felt its rays and we know the creator who put the sun in the sky, God, I pray that we would know more about you because of what we read this morning. I ask that your spirit would be here among us, that it would open our hearts to hear your truth. I ask that you would guide us in our understanding. I pray, Lord, that my words would not get in the way, but that your words would do their work. And that what you say would be heard in Christ's name. Amen. So we begin with Genesis. We begin with Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And here we have it, in the beginning. In the first three words of Scripture, the first three words the Bible gives us, we already learn something of our God. Our Bible does not start with once upon a time. Though it is a story, it's not a fictional story. Our Bible does not start with in the beginning of this world, 
or in the beginning of this present age, or anything beyond in the beginning. Because this was literally the beginning of time, of everything. And before this, there was no before this, which is something our finite, stuck-in-time minds don't quite grasp. But in the beginning was only God. God is the only thing that has existed from time eternal. There are no other things that were there. And God is the only thing that brought everything else into being. He didn't start with something. I love the cartoon. I've seen it in different ways, in different versions, of the scientist who comes running into the lab with a wheelbarrow of dirt and says, we've done it. We've figured out how to create life and turn dirt into a living, breathing being. And he looks up to the heavens. He says, God, I would challenge you to turn dirt into a living being, and I will do the same. And the simple voice of God comes back and says, gladly, but start with your own dirt. (laughs) We don't have our own dirt. We don't make our own stuff. Only God has always been and will always be, and in the beginning, that's all there was. And as we read on in the verse, it says, in the beginning, God created. Created what? Created the heavens and the earth. Moses, who wrote this, is his way of explaining all you can imagine, all you can see and all you can't see, all there is, the heavens and the earth. He made it all. All. And you know what? Since he made it all, he owns it all. And since he made it all out of nothing, he owes nothing to anyone for it. It's his. Which means he gets to design it, he gets to create it in the way he wants to create it, and it means he gets to make the rules for how it works. This is one of those things that um, those of us, well, okay, those of you who are creative, I'm not really one of those, um, though I pretend to be at times, creative people don't like this idea because creative people often have to earn their living and do things in ways that other people want them to do. And so designers and builders and artists and carpenters and, you know, people that make things, they have to make things according to what other people ask of them. They have to design the building because the, the buyer of the building has a purpose for it. Or they have to, have to draw up the graphics in order to sell the product or in order to convey a message in a way that the owners and, and those that are hiring them want them to do. And so for creative people, this is a point of frustration. God was not hired. God just was. And because God just was and because God created, God doesn't answer to any of us for how He created it. We are the ones that were created. And so we are the ones who answer to Him. We don't get to change the rules. We don't get to change the design. We don't get to remake it. Theologians like to call this sovereignty. The idea that God is over all, rules over all, designs, plans, creates, and causes all things. 
Most of us just call that authority. God's sovereign authority extends to everything He created. Keep reading. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God. We've come to call that the Holy Spirit. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jim McNichol unfolded for us a doctrine of God. What does it mean to talk about God? One of the things he talked about was that God is this mysterious, amazing, triune being. That somehow God exists in the person of the Father and the person of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. And that all of them are God. And God is all of them. And it's, it's really another one of those things where our brains just sort of stop at a point and go, I'll probably understand better when I'm remade better. But right now, that's just hard. But it's true. And right here, we see God and the Holy Spirit. And, and John, when he comes on the scene, later will tell us not only is God the Father and God the Spirit, but Jesus, God the Son, involved in creation. Because John opens his story of Jesus Christ by saying, all things that were made were made through Jesus. All things that were made. And so our Creator, this triune God, somehow works in harmony to bring everything into existence. Okay, two verses, three of the most complex doctrines there are. We have God's supreme authority, His sovereignty over everything. We have God eternally existent, making everything from nothing. And we have God, this trinity, this this triune being, exaltant over all. It's a lot to take in, (laughs) in two verses. But you can start to see why this idea of creation is an amazing thing. And how it extends to everything that we touch and learn and read. And at this pace, (laughs) I remember um, some time ago, we took our family to Washington, D.C. It was the first time there. And part of what we were going to do was go into some museums and we'd learn about creation. And maybe even in those museums, we'd see things about our Creator that are told by the creation story. And so we went to the first museum at the Smithsonian. It's kind of the classic one. And we went upstairs, and, and, and we'd been there for, I don't know, a couple, three hours, I think. And I kind of, everybody's wandering and reading and looking, and I kind of gathered everybody up. And I said, okay, guys, here's the deal. We're going to see all of the mall and the Smithsonian and the monuments in a day. We've been here for three hours. We haven't left one floor. <laughs> you probably ought to speed it up, unless this is all you want to do. Now, I could talk for the next 20 minutes about Genesis 1 and 2, <laughs> but I won't. Um, so, we're going to speed it up a little bit, and here's where I need some help. Um, I need some help, uh, preferably from the younger folk among us. Kids, I'm going to read a handful of verses. I want you to listen for the words that get repeated This is a great study technique, by the way, as you're reading your Bible. Look for things that get repeated. So I'm going to read verses 3 through 10. You listen. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was everything, there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed. And it continues on. What did you hear? Any repeats? And God said, any more? The croupers are dutifully raising their hands. Thank you, guys. What did you hear? What? Light. Yes. And God said, light. And there was light. Does Colleen have a repeat? Dark. There was light and there was dark. I'll get more in a minute. Let's start with and God said. And God said. And God said. And God said. It's repeated over and over and over again, so it's worth paying attention to. And God said, light, and light happened. And God said, waters part, and waters parted. And God said, land come forth, and land came forth. What is it about what God said? How do we understand a being that merely speaks and things happen? The Word of God causes creation. God doesn't sit down on His CAD system and spend an hour designing the orbital patterns of planets to make gravity work. Gravity is still one of those things that scientists don't understand. Oh, yeah, they can formulize it and they can do mathematical things with it, but ask them, how does it work? (laughs) Well, it just works. And it works because God said. How do we understand this? If you followed the story out of Thailand the last couple weeks, these young boys who were trapped in a cave because they, you know, they went exploring and the monsoon rains came and the, the cave filled with water. And it was, in a, it was this really dramatic rescue over the course of a couple weeks. It was an amazing story to follow. As part of the rescue, workers brought in these massive pumps and, and ran lines into the cave and were trying to pull water out of the cave. And they pumped literally millions of gallons of water. But the water just kept coming and coming and coming. And they couldn't keep up, and they couldn't catch up, and they said, this is power far beyond our control. Now imagine a being that says, water, and an entire planetary ocean system comes into being. This is the power of our Creator. This is God who speaks 
And when God speaks, things happen. Another of the repeated phrases, it's a little harder to catch because it kind of flows in the middle of some of the passages. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. Over and over again, God speaks and creation happens. And it is good. Because God is good. Because our Creator is perfect. And because our Creator is perfect, His creation is perfect, without flaw. And only a perfect Creator can design a perfect creation. And it was good because God brought it into existence, and He is a good and perfect Creator. Another phrase, there was morning, there was evening, and there was a day, first day, second day, third day. I want to take a little detour here. Because this is, this is one of those repeated phrases we need to pay attention to, but it, it presents a bit of a dilemma for us, because this is the source of some controversy. If you've read through the creation section closely and really thought it through, you might have noticed there's some things not in there. There's nothing about the number of days of creation. There's nothing about the number of years of the age of the earth. There's nothing about the creation versus evolutionary process. That wasn't by accident. That was actually intentional. In fact, some of the liveliest discussions that the elders had were exactly about those issues, and they were good. They were hard. But we came to realize that there are lots of things that influence us when we're talking about these theological issues. Lots of things that come into play. Yes, the Bible, that we want to be our primary source, without question. And we have creation, God's other revelation, to understand and to comprehend. But then all of us, every one of us, comes with background, right? We have ideologies, we have teachings, we have things we've learned and forgotten and things that we wish we hadn't have learned. We have philosophies and worldviews and all these different things that come into play. And so where do you sort and how do you divide and what's important and what's not important? And when it comes to this idea of how many days are in the creation and how many years are in the age of the earth and all of those sorts of things, there's a problem that we need to confess as believers. And the problem is that, sadly, those debates are often carried out poorly. The tone that surrounds these discussions is often beyond dogmatic. And people say things like, if you can't believe in a six-day creation, you're not even a Christian, you're merely a heretic, masquerading. Or if you really believe that the earth could be less than thousands or millions of years old, you obviously know nothing about science, and how can I possibly give credibility to anything else you say? And these aren't things spoken by believers arguing against atheists. These are the things spoken about believers arguing against other believers. And I think that we need to be honest about how we approach these discussions. And I think we need to be honest about how the debates happen because really a lot of those debates, if you dig a little bit, aren't even about creation. People debate about the number of days of creation, but 
and this isn't true for everyone, but a large number of those debaters are talking about things like, what does yom mean, the Hebrew word for day, and how do we interpret it in Genesis 1 compared to the other parts of the Bible? And what they really are getting at is, is the Bible true? Is it God's word? Can we trust it? Is it reliable? And then if it is true, and if it is reliable, and we can trust it, how do we go about understanding it? And they're worried that if the six days of creation fall, then so does all the Bible. And we've already said, if you were here last week, the Bible is God's Word, and it is utterly true and utterly reliable. And so we don't need to include that again in a statement about creation. Evolution has all sorts of foundational debates underlying it. Are we really created in the image of God? Are we an animal just like all the other animals? Did God really stop and make Adam and Eve as their own unique beings? Was there death before Adam's sin that would be necessary for evolution, according to certain scientific theories, to take place? And we've answered what we need to answer. Not just in the creation passage, though there is some good stuff in there about how God did create Adam and Eve. But if you want to know, did man die before Adam sinned, come back next week when we'll talk about the fall, or just read Genesis 3 and read the doctrine statement about the fall. And the answer is no. Man did not die before sin. But we don't need to incorporate that into our creation statement. And I'm happy to talk about those things. And I'm happy to continue the discussion because some of you may feel differently, and it's probably worth having the discussion. But we need to have the discussion both here in our body and out there in the world. We need to have the discussion in the way that honors our Lord. Because Jesus said, they'll know you follow me because of your love for one another. And if our bitterness and our anger get in the way of our love for one another, then we're not following Jesus. So let's have the discussion and let's make it lively and let's do it with grace and compassion for one another. So why didn't we include it? Quite honestly, to be very blunt, we thought it was more distracting than helpful. And we felt that we could answer the issues in other ways that wouldn't provoke the controversy quite as emotionally. But let's talk. Not now. Later. <laughs> let's talk more now about what else we need to understand about creation. And I'm sorry, I'd love to go through the rest of the days, but um, I've been told that I can talk longer than I should. And so I'm going to skip it with a homework assignment. Kids, those, that you, those of you that have the kids bulletin, um, there's a little uh, matching chart in there for which thing did God create on which day. I gave you one through three and a half. Um, do the rest at home. If you can read, read Genesis 1 and match up the pictures. If you can't read yet, have mom or dad read it with you and match up the pictures. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. We're going to skip to the climax. 
Genesis 1, 26 and 27 gives us the climax of creation in the work of God creating humankind, men and women. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. See the first three words? And God said. What God says happens. And so what unfolds is a new kind of creature, different from all the others. Different from the creeping things on the earth and the swimming things in the sea and the flying things in the heavens. Unique. Because this new creature bears the image of God. God, this triune being, says, let us... Make them in our image. And we reflect God's image like nothing else in all of creation. We are living, sentient beings. We're aware of ourselves. We know that we are. We have emotion. We have intellect. We have reason. We have creativity. We have things that nothing else in creation does. And so, we reflect God's image. Perhaps most importantly, we have a soul. There's something else to us than what you can see and touch and measure. Not only are we made in God's image, but God says that because you bear my image, I want you to govern in my place. He implants on us His image, and then He grants to us a stewardship of all that He made, all those other things, the plants and the birds and the fish and the animals and so on. And God says, I will give humanity dominion over every other living thing, and I will entrust those living things to you. We're not here merely to serve ourselves. We're here to serve the God who delegated His authority to us. You see, when we talk about the creative folks, the graphic designer or the carpenter who creates because he's been hired to do so, he's actually exercising that delegated authority to say, I, the owner, am delegating to you the, the authority to design. In God's world, it's exactly the opposite. God has designed, God has created, and He's delegated to us the authority to work out that creation according to His design and His plan, not according to our own. So as we consider what it means to be stewards of God's creation, it's also helpful to dig a little bit into these verses about what it means to be created not just in the image of God, but to be created in two categories with the image of God. You should notice he makes a point of saying, we will make man generically 
in the old world sense of man, humanity, in our image. But he's very careful then to say male and female. He created them. Who know, knew that thousands of years ago, when Moses penned these words, that there would one day be a great nation upon the earth who got all flummoxed over male versus female, and which word is proper in which setting. And God said, all right, I'll give you this one, male and female, just so there's no misunderstanding. Both are created in the image of God. But there is a difference. There is a distinction. Now, we've done, God, the great service of coming up with lots of other distinctions. We have divided people according to their color and their size and their shape and their outward appearance and their inward ability, and we've divided them according to their wealth and according to their genealogy and according to their everything else that we can imagine. Lots of ways we've figured out how to categorize people. God didn't. God said there's male and there's female. Now, there may be helpful times when it's good to create distinctions. But in this case, just know the Creator designed two. So we would be well to be cautious about the other divisions that we want to make and how we apply them. But whatever those distinctions might be useful for or not useful for, Know this, they mean nothing when it comes to our standing before our Creator, because all bear the image of God. Why male and female? I don't know. We know that men are made in the image of God. We know that women are made in the image of God, because God said so. And when God says, it happens. Why did He decide to do it that way? One day, maybe you can ask. We can speculate. Perhaps God simply knew that His image was too great, too complex, too much for one of us to bear alone. Perhaps God knew that by being entrusted together, by having a man and a woman coming together, as Ecclesiastes would say, with God to unite in a cord of three strands that we would somehow, in some weird way, reflect this Trinity concept? Perhaps. Perhaps God was laying a foundation. Perhaps God was putting in place a nugget of truth, a seed that would just sit dormant for several thousand years until the Apostle Paul would be inspired to write words that would give flower to the seed. Here's what I mean. If you were to skip all the way to the end, that is, all the way to the end of the creation story, Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, God sort of summarizes how He leaves man and woman. And He says, Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God has this design in mind, that there will be one man and one woman, and they'll be united in a very personal, intimate 
way. Now, we've come to label that marriage, appropriately so, because that's the way the Bible talks about marriage, and that's what marriage means. But God didn't leave the marriage picture in the garden. Marriage as a man and a woman has not changed, but all that marriage is meant to show us, I hate to say has changed because it really hasn't, but it's become clearer. You see, the words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they'll become one flesh, those words show up again in the Bible. It's not the only time they're written down. These words are quoted verbatim by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And and we hear these words in Genesis repeated at weddings all the time, and that's good. But sometimes those things that we hear repeated, we sort of grow immune to. And we hear the words of Ephesians 5 often spoken at weddings, perhaps not quite as often, but, but still we can perhaps skip over them too quickly. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see what he did? Paul says, this ancient doctrine of uniting one man and one woman really is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church. Now, could God have said that? Sure. But would it have made sense thousands of years before Christ came on the scene? No, not really. But Paul explains it. What's fascinating to me about that explanation isn't really the explanation. What's fascinating to me is about the original words. If God meant to take two people and unite them together in some sort of intimate, loving, compassionate, self-sacrificing relationship, and if He meant that to be a picture to the world of what Christ and the church looks like, wouldn't it have made sense to talk about that when man knew he needed Christ? Think about the timing of these words. Genesis chapter 2 says, I'm creating this relationship, this unity. Genesis chapter 3 says, man fell by rebelling against God and that God would need to redeem His creation. God says, I created. God says creation is good. And before the serpent enters the scene, and before Eve takes the fruit, and before Adam hides in fear and shame, God is preparing. God is putting a plan in place. God is saying, thousands of years from now, this will be more clear to you. But God knew. God knew that His his beautiful creation. And those that He created in His image would rebel. And He knew that His own image bearers would shove Him aside and try to rule themselves. 
And people would ask, is God really sovereign if he can't control his own creatures? What kind of sovereignty is a God whose creatures get away from him? And before man even knew he needed a redeemer, God designs his creatures different but the same, man and woman in God's image, to come together, to be united in a picture of the redemption of humanity. Yes, my God is a sovereign God who says, before you know you need a Savior, I've prepared the way for that salvation. Now, here's the temptation. We read the story. We know the truth of it, but it just stays a story. And so God prepared us. And God said, I will give you a psalm, Psalm 139. And if you read this psalm, you will know that the creation of man is not just about the creation of a man or the men and women. It's about the creation of you and me. Because Psalm 139 says, God knew me, me before I was conceived. God knew me better than I could ever know myself, and God intimately fashioned me and you, each one, individually. And in fashioning you, each one, individually, God knew that you would take after your great, 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 however many greats we need, grandfather and grandmother, and you would rebel. And you would try to shove aside the creator that placed his image upon you. And you would say, I will rule my life according to my design, not according to the design of the creator. And God said, before there was a sin to be atoned for, I had a plan, and my plan was that the atonement would come through the person of Jesus Christ, one being who was not created, but who has always been, but would enter into creation and would willingly give his life. The Bible says it. It's God's Word. What God's Word says is true. In the beginning, God had a plan. And the all-powerful, eternal, sovereign authority of the universe will accomplish His plans. And at the beginning, in Genesis, we see the plan in little tiny glimpses. And as the Bible unfolds, chapter after chapter and book after book, the plan comes into focus. And it stops at the cross. And it says... This is love that God would give His only Son so that the creatures who have run from Him could be brought back. And then it goes on and it says not only does the cross allow us to be brought back, but the cross allows God to remake you, me, and all that we see and hear and taste and touch and smell in the And in the remaking of all of that, God's plan is fulfilled, the plan that began. 
in the beginning. Pray with me. God, trying to understand your plan from the beginning until now is more than I can grasp. But I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would give each of us a glimpse of what that means. Most of us know you, God, because of your grace. And I pray that your Spirit would be working in us to make this real to us and to give us worship for the God who created us. Some of us don't even know you. And I pray that your word would be active in the hearts and minds of those who need to know you, that they may be brought back and be made again, anew, afresh, by the Creator who designs all things and has the power to call all things good. Through Christ our Savior. Amen. Psalm 19 begins by telling us how the creation reflects the glory of God, and then it continues by telling us how the Word of God is great and worthy because it reflects that same Creator. And then at the end, David concludes with these words, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May that be our prayer. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.